0: Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores stories, science, and secrets from the world's brightest thought leaders for those of us who are curious at heart.
1: I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore human behavior that will improve your relationships, your well-being, and your organization by helping you find your groove. From best-selling authors to researchers, you will learn insights from the sharpest minds in behavioral science, as well as psychology, behavioral economics, and neuroscience. And with the start of season five, we are beginning a month of
0: podcast focus on the application of behavioral science inside of business. And I think we couldn't have started with anyone better. In this episode, Tim and I speak with Matthew Wilcox, the author of The Business of Choice, Marketing to Consumers' Instincts. It was named the Marketing Book of the Year and is the winner of the American Marketing Association's prestigious Barry Book Prize. This book is full of practical tips for marketers, but even more, even more. It is a book that lays out some fundamental insights into our human behavior.
1: Yeah, it's also worth noting that Matthew is a founding partner of The Curious Company, which focuses on social impact and uses anthropology, behavioral economics, and human-centered design to make beneficial behaviors easy and natural. And over the years, Matthew has worked with a variety of top-shelf firms, including Levi Strauss, Electronic Arts, Unilever, Nestle, Shell, and GlaxoSmithKline, and he's helped them craft their brand strategies.
0: He has also acted as an expert on behavior change for the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's anti-smoking programs. It's an impressive catalog of work. And, of course, Matthew's contact information is called out in the show notes. Absolutely.
1: And in keeping with other episodes this month, we're doing something a little different with our grooving session. What? We're going to do something different? You and me? (laughs) Never,
0: never happens. All
1: right. What are we doing different, Tim? Our listeners are used to hearing the two of us groove on what our guests talked about immediately after the interview. But this episode, with this episode, like others this month, we're splitting the grooving session away from the interview. So this episode is just the interview, and it ends with the close of our conversation with Matthew. Okay. So
0: the very next episode then will be our grooving session, the one that would normally just follow this conversation and be part of this episode. But we're taking that and putting it as its very own episode. Is that right, Tim? Yeah, I, I think so. It's it's a plan. Let's go Flared. it. All right. Well, good, good. And just so everyone knows, we'll be doing the same thing with next week's episode on Ben Power, the author of Captivology. It's a book about how we gain and maintain someone's attention. It's really cool. And we'll split Ben's episode into two as well. And of course, we're interested in what you think about this approach. Do you like it? Do you prefer it? Is it just
1: meh? I don't know. Let us know. Absolutely let us know. And with that, we encourage you to sit back with, well, whatever you choose to drink, and enjoy (laughs) our conversation with Matthew Wilcox. Matthew Wilcox, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank
2: you. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) From the (laughs) office.
0: like to take that again? <laughs> that, it, go that we have.
2: No. Matthew Wilcox, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Well thank you Tim and Kurt for having me on the show. It's a pleasure and a delight to be here.
1: We're excited.
2: Yeah, so let's
1: let's get started with a speed round. Would you prefer to live in wine country or live in the city?
2: That's a really good question because we kind of somehow bridge the two. But living in the city at the moment is not kind of what living in the city has been in the past. So even in a fantastic place like San Francisco, COVID's kind of made it less of a cultural, less of a social experience. So one of the things that has happened during COVID is we have spent more time going along coastal walks. So as some reference to living in the wine country, we live up in Sonoma County. And, um, you know, it's, COVID's helped us discover things more. I'm, I'm a keen bird watcher, and bird watchers keep a list of birds they see in my Sonoma County list as going through the roof as I kind of pursue sort of less, less common species that uh, keep turning up. I was looking for a uh, solitary sandpiper yesterday, but didn't find it. Oh my gosh. So you love that. The, the idea of, of,
0: of bird watching in the city. My neighbor, who I live in Minneapolis, is an avid bird watcher, and I'm just hoping that he doesn't listen to this and then realize he should move out to the country. So um, there you go. All right, Matthew, simple one, coffee or tea? Well, so I think at some stage I grew up, uh, I grew up uh, in Ireland. This so is simple. supposed to be a simple. This is supposed to be a simple one, and it, it sounds like there's a story that's coming I, on I here. here we go. Simple. All right, all right. Let's here we go. Let's go.
2: No, I, I grew up in Ireland. At some stage, Ireland had the highest per capita tea consumption in the world, um, and so I was kind of you know pretty much force-fed tea through my early years, and I still I still enjoy a good cup of tea. Um, but coffee by, by a country mile, as we say, coffee is the winner here for me. Um, (laughs) I'm married to an Italian, so that's only increased my appreciation of coffee and I kind of coffee was like about twice or three times the price of tea when I was a kid. So it was a luxury. It was scarce without sort of getting straight into behavioral principles. That scarcity, I think sort of stuck with me. And so coffee is the, it's luxurious. It has an effect. And i I probably have like. Eight shots of espresso a day. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. I
1: don't think there's enough English breakfast tea to even approach the amount of caffeine that you get in that. Holy (laughs) cow. Okay. uh, We're just moving so swiftly through the speed round here. Would you prefer to have dinner with your favorite athlete, musician, or researcher?
2: and i'm going to kind of put a little bit of a spin on this because i think i would not an athlete but a sports coach i think would be a very interesting person to have oh a coach dinner okay a coach yeah but coaches could be kind of interesting they take a lot of decisions uh, they have to think what they would do a lot of what they're happening is is very very conscious i mean so uh, and if it was one coach in particular it would be the uh, controversial jose Mourinho is now the ex manager of of Real Madrid, Inter Milan, Chelsea, Manchester United, and as of last week, Tottenham Hotspur, and I think he's probably got some good stories to share.
1: Oh my oh, god! Oh, I'll bet. I'll, I'll bet. Okay. All right.
0: All right. Here. Here's the my big question. Right. So this which is still is, the speed round. We're still in the speed <laughs> round. Part, remember. Okay. <laughs> so I need to talk faster. Is that what you're telling me, Tim? I need to. I need to speed this up. Here we go. Which is easier, brain plasticity? or body plasticity, particularly around that midriff area
2: <laughs> and that belly region in the body. All right. <laughs> well, I think very often we don't know when we're undergoing uh, uh, brain plasticity. So it might be easier because it just sort of happens. But what I would almost call reverse body plasticity when your body runs out of control. So so this <laughs> comes to a reference that uh, when I was trying to describe how plastic the brain is in my book, I, I make the analogy of, of kind of Going to the gym. If you lift biceps, if you sorry, if you lift weights uh, and and do bicep curls for a couple of weeks, you will see a difference. Likewise, if you engage in activities over a period of time, you you can sometimes see a difference in in the function of certain areas of the brain. But I think sort of probably body plasticity, where you kind of let yourself go, as I did in the first months of COVID, when suddenly pants that were kind of comfortable became distinctly sort of tight in 1970s sort of saturday night fever on me (laughs) oh i am i am fully
0: with you on the element of that body part just not being able to to get it as much as we know about behavioral science and we should be able to to maintain a diet and do our regular exercise i just have not been able to to get that extra 10 15 pounds off so Mm -hmm.
2: yeah it's a yeah, it's, it's a struggle, but it keeps us going. It's, a, it's a, a multi-billion.
0: It's a multi-billion-dollar industry, so yeah. obviously, you know, other people are cashing in on this
1: as well. Last speed round question, Matthew. So we'll we'll take take you out of the hot seat uh, shortly after this. But first, are you more likely to read product reviews before or after a purchase?
2: So I think I I, I was doing it just the other day. And it was actually, strangely enough, the the same thing I talked about in the book. So one of the things which is interesting is I think we tend to think about product information as informing a decision we make. But very often, and this is a really powerful thing for marketers to bear in mind, it can be and is used. And We did a study in a company I worked in a couple of years ago that looked at when people looked at product information. And we've, we saw huge numbers of people looking at information about products they bought after they bought them. And one of the reasons for this is kind of if it's, and I think people are very selective, they're not looking for information which says they made a bad choice. What they're looking for is information that makes them, which which kind of confirms that they made a good choice. And this is interesting because it kind of does create, I mean, it makes us feel good. Um, and this is something that underlies my whole philosophy of thinking about marketing, which is Marketing is about influencing choice, of course, but it's also about kind of creating choices that help people feel good, and that's, in a way, almost a higher calling for marketing. If you can create choices that actually can help, can help people feel both good about their choices and good about themselves and good about their decision-making, that is a positive thing. So what I was doing was looking at a pair of binoculars I'd bought actually about eight years ago now <laughs> just to see if they were still the kind of the well-regarded binoculars it was triggered by the fact that I had to send them back to the manufacturer because a part had broken on them. But nonetheless, I went to that review, and I kind of still felt pretty good about my choice. I'd made a smart choice; they're high-quality binoculars, but they sell at about 30 percent more, less expensive than uh, than the you know the likers and the sizes of the world.
0: Mm. And you use those to
2: find your sandpiper. Well, no, I, I, I don't because they're off being repaired. But no, the, and 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 I didn't find the solitary sandpiper. <laughs> the solitude
0: sandpiper. Well, that was why because you didn't have you didn't have your right That's what it was this. with you. There
2: you go. No, um. I, I have I have more than one pair.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, Matthew, I love this idea though that you think about marketing as a concept of not just about inferring the decisions and trying to influence the decisions, but in making people feel good about those decisions can you expand upon that how how do marketers do that in a way that is ethical I mean one of the things that you I mean I, I could see people coming in and say well you just you know you're selling me a piece of crap but you're you're conflating it with all these good things so I think it's good and that's not what I'm hearing you say I'm hearing you say something else so can you mm-hmm. expand upon that maybe for a little bit
2: yeah and I think some of it is is people finding things themselves. I mean a lot of it is is having information out there that people can go to and can easily find. And I, you know I mean the the classic sort of thing that sort of irritates me a little when a when a waiter comes up to you and says that's a great choice sir. Part of the problem there is that he is telling you that you've made a great choice rather than you finding it out yourself. Mm. I mean discovery is a really really powerful thing. And You know, so I think that the whole idea for me is that, and I kind of call this a choice-centric approach to marketing, I think we see courses on consumer behavior. We see marketing insights departments called consumer insights departments. And the reason is a couple of things. One is, you know, I think in this age where sustainability is incredibly important, focusing on consumption in any way and what people consume, unless you're trying to reduce that consumption. Is not a good thing. It is not sort of a, it is not the language that organizations should use. Language is really important and it kind of sets many different agendas. But the second thing is that when you think about marketing, it is not so much about consumption, it is much more about choice. It is what we do in marketing, we don't directly drive consumption, but what we can do is affect choice. So to think about what you do through a word, that actually relates to the function and to the skills that you need to do it to me seems to be a good thing so that's why i sort of suggest that we should be choice centric to focus on the choices that people make rather than focusing on what they consume i also think that if if somebody was to <laughs> define me by what i consumed they would end up going through my trash can whereas <laughs> if they were to define me by what i Choose—that's an entirely different thing. It's a much more respectful sense. You you learn more about me. You learn more about how I work rather than the trail that I leave behind me. So I think so. That's that's why I kind of focus. I take this notion of focusing on choice. And so, you know, you could say, well, what do you what do you call people if you don't call them consumers? And uh, an excellent book that you you'll all have read, "The Art of Choosing" by Sheena Iyengar. She sort of quickly gets into sort of talking about people as choosers. I think this is a great term, and I, you know, I use it. I'm, I'm advocating. I get, every workshop I do, every conversation I have with people, I use this word, and I'm hoping that this or some other alternative, like participants, may stick in turn instead of the word consumer. So, if that's the only thing I leave behind me, I'll be sort of kind of cool with that. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, what should they do? What should if marketers have been misdirected? by thinking about the consumption side, How, what should marketers be doing to be thinking about the choice aspects of of the equation?
2: Yeah. And I, I don't think they've necessarily been misdirected. I mean, I think, you know, one of the issues with practitioners talking to companies and organizations about behavioral science insights is they very often say, you've got it all wrong. You know, and the amount of posts I see you marketers have been getting it all wrong this is what they they haven't been getting it wrong <laughs> they've been very very successful at what they do and in fact they've been often using the uh, techniques and principles that behavioral science has put a name on without naming them without consciously knowing or knowing what they are but I think a number of things so, so the first thing that I try to do with organizations is and I do this a lot in my workshops, Is to get them to focus on the choices they need people to make, and once you've done that, then you can start thinking about the things that might be affecting that choice, and think about it in the broadest possible sense. Think about it in terms of human nature. I mean, the 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 things that I talk a lot about in my book, but also cultural aspects, systems. I mean, you know, is, is the system lined up with the choices that you need people to make? Is that making things more difficult? Is your past marketing or your where your brand is perceived? Does that make choice difficult? So I think it's sort of it's not it's not just a sort of what is the final choice people make, but understanding how you can create the pathway to that choice, how you can make that choice as I say easy, natural, and rewarding. Yeah, people talk about brands a lot and talk about what are what a brand's form. For me, I think it's I have a, a simple definition. It's not complete. But what brands do is they make choice easy, natural, and rewarding. They make—I mean, they—they they make a when you when you're faced with a number of choices, a brand helps you cut through those large numbers. Uh, it, a brand that is well designed and well assembled doesn't create dissonance, so it's kind of it feels like a natural choice. But also, it kind of it brings along associations. It is—it is—it brings along memories, and it is rewarding in terms of you feeling good about that choice. So, so what I
0: what I hear you talking about is, and I think you call it the ecosystem of the decision, uh, is is everything that is surrounding this decision that people make, the choice that people make, and so how do if I'm a marketer or if I'm just anybody who is looking to, you know, obviously influence somebody, what what do I need to be looking at from that ecosystem perspective?
2: So, I mean, and it goes back a long way. Um, this is not just, as I said, about the uh, the last mile. This is not just about sort of, um, you know, kind of making that offer on the supermarket shelf or on the website seem like a, an irresistible one. One of the critical things is, is that the choice comes to mind easily, that the brand, the option comes to mind easily. This is classic availability or recognition heuristic. We won't get into the difference between <laughs> the two here, but that's a, a great debate to have at some stage. So that means kind of having created associations and memories, having something that comes to mind. That's where where the billions of dollars of advertising that have been spent actually have an effect on the choice down the road. So it's sort of it's it, it starts off with kind of creating the right conditions in terms of recall in terms of, of, of a brand coming to mind when when people are trying to make a choice but it, and it goes right the way down to uh, making sure that sort of uh, the pricing is right making sure that you're in the best environment to foster choice or to do things that you can to tweak that environment when people are actually making the choice you 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 of course are great advocates of the importance of context it's uh, really uh, in my book I wrote a, a chapter called um, uh, if if content is king, context is queen, and I mean that in the sense of context queen in in, in chess, the queen is the most powerful piece on the chessboard, um, and and you know sort of so understanding the context in which the choice is made is really 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 important. Tell
1: us a little bit about that that framework, if you would.
2: Sure. So you know frameworks are. I think I spent a lot of my professional career resisting frameworks and tools because I kind of felt someone was. Telling me what to do. But you just want to be able to sort of make things usable, compress complexity without losing depth and nuance. And it's it's almost like sort of, I don't know, I mean the two best analogies I've had are sort of like comp, uh, lossless compression with music. How do you take all of this stuff and make it small so that it can be expanded out again? Or, or an analog version as a kind of a folding umbrella. I mean, a folding umbrella is an incredibly complicated thing, but it's small enough to take take with you. And when occasion arises, it comes out to its full majesty to, to protect you from the rain. And so, what I try to do is have something that enables all of this stuff to be compressed, but not degraded. And the way I do that is a thing I call the behavioral lens. And the behavioral lens is, as is often the case, we know the power of acronyms, it's an acronym. And it stands for L is for loss, E is for ease, N is for now and near, and S is for social and self. And these are deliberately broad because you know they can take in many, many of the effects that we want. I mean, loss sounds fairly straightforward. Uh, most people are familiar with the power of uh, of, of loss aversion, the uh, how how a the prospect of a loss has a significantly bigger effect in many cases, not in all cases. So on the first hand, we, we can look as marketers at loss as a way of, um, you know, kind of if we frame something as a loss, people might be drawn to it. But actually going back to the idea of, uh, of the ecosystem of the choice, for me, the importance of understanding loss is how it might stop, how a perceived loss may stop people from making the choice that you want them to make and in my workshops one of the most important exercises I do is get people to kind of think about sort of what what loss what what, what is it that people might lose that might not make the the path to the choice you want them to make as straightforward and as easy and as natural as possible. So losses is, is, is important in that respect. I did by the way first of all I called this model this this uh, this framework Elon. Uh, and it was ease, loss, others, and now or near. But I thought that sort of being litigious, Elon Musk might sort of come after me for <laughs> using a tool with his name. Uh, yeah, um, lens, so, lens is good. Lens is a good. Yeah, lens, lens, yeah. Is a lens. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with how that <laughs> that works. At some stage, I'll be able to send lens Chotskis to to customers and people. <laughs> um, ease is is obviously we know this is is incredibly important. Uh, But I kind of broaden it. It's, uh, we're drawn to the path of least physical and cognitive effort. So that obviously includes sort of cognitive fluency, but it also, it, it, it also covers things that we talked about a couple of minutes ago. Um, how easily something comes to mind, you know, where we have, uh, you know, how, how mentally available something is. Or even how evaluable something is. I love this term that's often used, evaluability, which is sort of a choice is often dictated not by the sheer, the, the, the benefits of the choice itself, but how easy it was to evaluate against other options. Mm-hmm. And you know, sort of that's another critically important thing. So if you're a marketer, what is what is the frame, what what are people comparing you to? It may not be what you think. <laughs> the default comparison may not be the thing that's helping you. But actually, you can create other comparisons. There's a fantastic cultural example, in the UK and Ireland, not so much in Ireland because we didn't have many Rolls Royces, but people talk about the Rolls Royce of lawnmowers, or in America, the Cadillac of sewing machines. I mean, that's a great example of taking something to compare yourself to that takes you to an altogether different position. Mm-hmm. I think, and I don't even think it was intentional. But one of my favorites is uh, the Great Dos Equis advertising, which. May only be familiar to um, to people who listen to this podcast in the US, but a number of years ago, Dos Equis did this amazing advertising campaign called "The Most Interesting Man in the World," and um, this was for Dos Equis, which is a Mexican imported beer. And at the time they launched it, or before they launched it, Mexican imported beers were not doing at all well. Um, they were doing less well than other imported beers. So the natural comparison set would be other Mexican beers, just to show that we are better than other Mexican beers. Uh, but Dos Equis didn't do that, and I think whether they did this consciously or not, I do not know. But the idea of saying you're better than the others in a category that's not doing well is not going to give you that much of a gain. And if you look at their advertising. This guy is, I mean, I, I kind of still, I, mean, I went through it frame by frame. He's wearing gold cufflinks and, and a tuxedo. He is in sort of cocktail bars. And this guy doesn't look like somebody who's going to be sort of drinking you know, beer by the bottle. And in fact, there's a, a line at the end of the ads which says, I don't always drink beer, but when I do, I prefer Dos Equis. And I think what they managed to do was change their frame of reference. Now, at the time this advertising broke, America was going through a a cocktail I mean, explosion, perhaps driven by Don Draper drinking old fashions or whatever <laughs> it was. The, the, but that was where kind of excitement and growth was happening. And somehow or another, I think what they did was they kind of made that their frame of reference. And this campaign was incredibly successful. And what, is, what are people comparing you to? That's a really important question to ask and you can it's what and that's part of ease this is this is, is part of the for me yeah. that is that is kind of like you know sort of what is the thing that sort of what is what what most easily comes to mind what is the most easy point of reference that you have and as marketers you can you can do some things to control that n is for now and near and we we all know the uh, effects of time on decision making classic temporal discounting experiments show that people take a a larger reward uh, sooner rather than sorry take a smaller reward sooner than a larger one later and you know, so understanding really the timescale of the decision and how you can make that work for you is really important. Construal level theory comes in here as well, which is that how people think of things as being more concrete in in, in near terms. And I call it now and near because there's also a distance factor. People feel differently about things that are now or near, that are near or far. If you're in the luxury brand business, actually making your brand seem far away. Is a very, very powerful thing. Reducing that familiarity a little bit is a good thing that works for you. Um, There was a great study uh, that a number of people, including Adam Alder, did a a couple of years ago where they found that disfluency, which is the opposite of fluency, (laughs) actually worked for luxury brands, making it more difficult to say their names. I mean, who but a native Scots Gaelic speaker can say Lefroy properly. <laughs> you know, there is something exactly. That. I, I learned Irish at school, so I probably have an advantage over other people. But, uh, but you know, so you have these sort of things where you know that that being making something a bit more difficult can actually make something more interesting. And then the S stands for social and self, and this covers again many things. Uh, it, it clearly covers social proof, which is uh, you know kind of the the notion that. Other people's behavior is, is is an important guide for us. And I would go further and say that uh, this extends to my bird watching. So often I will sort of trying to approach. Now, it would not be solitary sandpipers because solitary sandpipers are normally solitary. But if you're approaching a flock of, of shorebirds of other species of sandpipers to try to identify them, you know, and you get you inch closer, you go take a couple of paces closer and closer. And sort of just when you can work out whether they have sort of dark green legs or dark brown legs, One flies away and another one flies away. And then seconds later, the entire flock flies away. And I use this as an example because it's kind of, you know, the the birds use social proof as well. The first and second bird were reacting to the danger or the perceived danger that was me. But the remainder were reacting to the behavior of the other birds. Hmm. And so, you know, so we take our cues and this is where sort of understanding what other cues are people getting that might drive their behavior from other people. And self is really important. Self is uh, your self-identity. And we know how people, you've covered this a lot in, in, in recent episodes where you've talked about sort of vaccination hesitancy and mask wearing, how people, when people feel they might be losing an aspect of their social identity, they they react. They have reactions. but But also, there's a great area that is, I think, so overlooked by marketers, which is uh, a thing called well, self-efficacy is important, but there's a, an aspect of self-efficacy which is decision-making self-efficacy. How do people feel about their skills in making a particular decision? And I think this is again something that you have to sort of as, 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 uh, that marketers should really focus on. How do you make so often? And it's not surprising we all think we're the most important beings in the world or entities in the world. So often, marketers want their brand to be the expert. But really, the best place you can get to is when the person choosing you feels like the expert. So, how can you improve, how can you make them feel decision-making experts experts in the category that you operate in? So, that's a quick run-through of the lens, L-E-N-S. It's a fantastic framework from the perspective
0: that, as you mentioned, frameworks can be seen as these shortcuts, various different pieces, and, and you talk about the compression of music and then the expansion back out. and I. That's the piece about frameworks is that they they tend to point you in the right in, in a direction, but they can be limiting in in some of that. But what is nice about this framework, and what I really appreciate about it, is that it points you, but still allows lots of, of variance in how you apply it and and the aspects that are going into it. because, as we can talk about now is this context matters, right? This idea that that you can apply this framework, but the framework gets changed based upon some of the context that, or, or the way that it gets applied, is is changed based upon the context of, of of how this is in people are are seeing the advertisement or having that that piece of information sent to them. And so, let's talk about context a little bit. As you said, do you have king. If if content is king, you know context is queen. Help us understand that a little bit more.
2: There's a professor called Vlad Riskovisius, um, who did some really interesting work in this area. He wrote The Rational Animal. He said something, one of the most inspiring things I was watching him talk at the Society of Consumer Psychology a number of years ago, back 2012 or so. He kind of he said, you know, I don't think of cognitive biases as design flaws. I think of them as design features, which I think is a beautiful way of expressing this sort of thing, which can be to think of bias thinking as a flaw. But he also looked at how he uses this, this great analogy, which is that we're almost like our brain almost works like a smartphone. He calls it a Stone Age smartphone. He has an evolutionary psychology background. But you know, that phone has a number of components, and those components kick in in different ways depending on the task, what the, what the context is. If you're taking a photograph, the, the screen is the viewfinder. The uh, GPS becomes the, the geotag for the photograph. The audio becomes the click for the shutter. Yet if the phone is in a different mode, it becomes something else. So what he talks about is how we operate in different modes and how those modes affect actually sort of how we do things. One of his famous studies shows how when people were prompted, whether people would, would follow a, a behavior to join in something or to stand apart from something in different contexts and in his particular study and i won't get this exactly right but he he gave people a, a choice of of ads where uh, one was suggesting they would be one of a kind if they did something whereas the other would suggest that they were joining a crowd um and he did all the things to look at sort of psychographics beforehand as to whether those people were more likely or less likely to feel like crowd joiners or solitary individuals But then he did a sort of your classic two-by-two where half of the respondents for each piece of stimulus, he showed a different clip of a movie. For one group, it was a a particularly scary clip from The Shining where Jack Nicholson is kind of rampaging around just about to to kill people. Uh, And the other, it was a romantic comedy with Juliette Binoche. I I can't remember because the film wasn't as memorable as The Shining. (laughs) Uh, But what he found was, what he and his, his associates found was, That when people were primed with the film that was scary, they were more likely to be interested in the ad which suggested the safety of numbers. Yet when people were primed with this safe, comfortable romantic comedy, they were more likely to take something which was being a more individual, a choice that kind of might make them vulnerable in some way or another. Now, the classic thinking of marketers is to line up content. So, if you're if you're trying to sell something which is about risk taking, you put it in the centre break of the shining if the shining is showing. <laughs> or if you're trying to do something which is safe, you find some safe media to put in. So, I think that's a a good example where sort of to understand not just context is important. I think marketers have always realised that, but I don't know they've always understood the behavioural power of context and how it might change the message.
1: That is fantastic. We. We love context. Kurt and I are just huge fans of 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 context. We have so many more things that we we could talk about here, but I would just want to say Vlad is actually at the University of Minnesota. He is right here. But that said, I would like to turn over to ask you this is the, and this is maybe the most important question that we're going to ever discuss. What music will you take with you if you were stranded on a desert <laughs> island?
2: Say. <laughs> So, this, uh, <laughs> so for those who don't know, there is a, not that you should divert your listening attention away from behavioral grooves. We all have a finite amount of attention and time, but there is an excellent BBC radio show called Desert Island Discs. It's actually the longest running radio show ever in the world. And it's a very simple thing. It, it, it is, uh, they ask uh, guests, they are normally celebrities. They've had um, everybody, I mean, Daniel Kahneman was on it a couple of years ago. They ask them. To choose their seven discs, a disc is a um, uh, well, way of listening to music. Sorry, <laughs> for those who don't remember, all all those right. youngsters in the in the audience. <laughs> yes, uh, and, and not Let's for anybody that, that's under fifty. But. <laughs> yeah, there's seven tracks that they would take away with them on a desert island. But I, I think I would take two things with. Well, take well, the first thing I would take with me is a Bach cantata, which is. Uh, a piece of, I can't even remember the exact number. I think it's 37, but there's a most beautiful part in this called "Ich habe genung. I have seen enough, and it's uh, it is just the most moving, transcendental piece of music. I think another one I would take with me is a song I grew up with, which is uh, Neil Diamond's "Sweet Caroline." Uh, Neil Diamond is huge in Ireland. He says whenever he goes to Ireland, he doesn't have to sing because the audience actually do all the singing. He kind of just <laughs> kind of introduces the songs and they get sung back to him. And, um, I'm mean, I, I I'm sure I've I, I played over the fantasy of being on Desert Island disc so many times in my mind, I could probably kind of go <laughs> through the whole This seven. is it, this is it, <laughs> Matthew, go. keep going, keep two. going. <laughs> I'm at two already. Okay. So number, <laughs> number three would be a song with a misleading title. It's an Irish song called Fanny Power. Which could be rude, but it's not. It's a beautiful, beautiful song by uh, the Irish bard Carolyn and uh, uh, was sung by Planksty. I mean, it's just a really lovely song, and I remember that from growing up as well. I think, um, you know, there's a most beautiful, and now I'm kind of riffing here, but a song by Gary Moore called Parisian Walkways. I don't know if you remember Gary Moore, the uh, yeah. ex-guitarist with Thin Lizzy and he is like it's I a mean, it's, it's melodic I mean it's a, it's a beautiful uh, uh, song again which kind of I'm sure it's seeing how much of this is coming from my my childhood and memories and stuff which is it always happens yeah it's what what happens and if we had to go modern I would probably <laughs> go and this is like I mean I'm just being incredibly cosmopolitan here uh, I would go with um Something we've been listening to. I'm, I'm really intrigued by the emergence of ethnic Albanian singers in in pop music. So you've got Rita Ora, you know, you've got uh, Babe Rexha. uh I mean, and you've got sort of this great sort of. I mean, it's really lively, soulful. Not soulful is the wrong word. Actually, it's completely the wrong word. Very lively, upbeat music. And so we listen to that sort of sometimes just to sort of dance around the house. And uh, I think that's kind of I could I could go on, but. Uh, you got there's, two more. Four or five. Two more to go. Two right. more. Come on, we're, we're
0: going to push oh, you.
1: Um,
2: Get in line. Get, Matthew, everybody's listening to ethnic Albanians music right now. It's like, <laughs> that's so yesterday, then, really. And it, 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 it's kind of Europop, really, sort of. Um, uh, so another piece of Bach. Bach is the most, I mean, precise mathematical music. And the Goldberg variations, which was one of the things that Kahneman chose. Is really, I mean, just a beautifully rhythmic. I mean, it's it's a way of sort of if you're trying to go to sleep, you won't go to sleep straight away because you have to listen to it. But it will, it will the the beauty, the movement of it, sort of will carry you off. So
1: that's oh, and, uh, and will it resolve? You know, there's always this sense of resolution in in uh, those pieces too.
2: There is, and in fact, another one. Then have so given me a great tip here. Is the Art of Fugue by Bach, which actually doesn't resolve. It's a beautiful sort of a classic fugue where sort of the, the the themes follow each other in counterpoint, but it, it just fades away because uh, in I mean, I think some people have finished it for him, but in some versions he didn't finish it, and it's a really kind of poignant thing, Is it just like you hear the sort of the last violin ending its final note without an ending. See, I
1: absolutely pegged you the wrong way. A Bach, three pieces of Bach in your top seven. I would have guessed at least a one or two Beethoven's. <laughs> I mean, they the, the I would have guessed you more for the romantic. So I'm I have to admit I totally
2: failed on that one, totally totally missed you. Well, I mean, there's a the, it, there's a lot to love about Beethoven as well. Um, yeah. I mean, the 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 Emperor Concerto is uh, could have could have easily sort of slid in there as the final piece. Okay,
1: <laughs> okay, that's fantastic, uh, Matthew. We are so grateful for your time and the conversation. It's just marvelous and uh we are so grateful that you have written the business of choice to you share your observations both from a behavioral science perspective and a business perspective uh with with the world so so thank you and thank you for continuing to update it well
2: thank you for having me it was a wonderful uh, thank you for fulfilling my desert island disc fantasy as well <laughs>